you'll take your Bible with me and if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we are picking up a series of messages that we have had a break from for several weeks and we're coming back to this series from the book of 1 Corinthians. This is actually the 10th message and we're just now in chapter 4, so I might have to speed it up just a little bit at some point. But I want you to follow along with me, if you will, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who, judge, he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have, not, we have been made as the filth of the world in the auscouring of all things until now. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask now for this message as we pick up where we left off in this series from 1 Corinthians and we move forward. I pray, Lord God, that you'll speak to our hearts this message this week, the one that will come next week, our Lord, are so important, so vital for us to see ourselves like Paul saw himself. And I pray, Lord, that we'll take on the spirit that he talks about here. We'll take on the attitude that he uses and expresses here. And, Lord, may we all become like the Apostle Paul, who was like the Lord Jesus Christ. In your name I pray. Amen. It was the early 70s. <clears throat> I was 15 years of age. And I was excited about playing golf. That was my thing. 
One day, my dad came home and he said, David, I've gotten us tickets to the Atlanta Classic, the Atlanta Golf Classic. The Atlanta Classic took place on the north side of Atlanta over in Marietta, Georgia at the Atlanta Country Club. And it was a yearly event. All the big-name professional golfers came, and it was a yearly event, uh, one that uh, you read about and you heard about. It was coming, and it was there, and after it had left, you know, you read about it in the paper, you heard about it on the news a lot because it was in your locality. When he came home and he said, we have tickets, I couldn't have been more excited than, than at that moment in my life. That was the first professional golf tournament I was ever able to go to, only one day, uh, we only got to go on Thursday. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to go on Sunday anyway. We went to church on Sunday. Uh, it wasn't going to the golf course, going to watch a tournament on Sunday wasn't a necessity, so we would not have missed church to go to a golf tournament. But we were able to go on that Thursday, and when we went that day, we got there very early, my dad and I. We got there very early, and our plan was to stay the whole day till the end of the day till the last golfer walked off the last green. You know, you want to get your money's worth, right? So I was excited about that day. 15-year-old boy, I had stars in my eyes. There were a lot of people I wanted to see that day. I'd seen them on television. I'd heard about them. I, I knew things about them. I'd read about them. Uh, some of them I had studied some things about them. Uh, but I wanted to see them in person. I wanted to see them up close. Uh, one of them w was Lee Trevino. I wanted to see Lee Trevino. Uh, he was just sort of the kind of guy that you wanted to be around, a little bit salty when you really got around him. But he interacted with the crowd that was there, and you were able to sort of have fun with him, and he had fun with the crowd. I wanted to see Tom Weiskopf. I wanted to see Gary Player from South Africa. I wanted to see him, uh, who was one of the regulars that played the Atlanta Classic. But above all of those, the one name that I wanted to see above any other name who was in the prime of his career was a golfer by the name of Jack Nicklaus. I wanted to see Jack Nicklaus in person. I wanted to see that blonde hair. I wanted to see those long drives. I wanted to be able to follow him around at least part of the day, be able to follow him around. Little did I know that it wasn't going to be just me following him around but a few thousand other people who wanted to follow him around. And no matter where you were, how much ahead you got, you were always in a crowd of people. And as a teenager, just trying to see over people, just trying to see that character, that individual. But he was the superstar. That particular year, he won. He beat Tom Weiskopf on that Sunday afternoon, and he won the tournament. So that made it even better that I had seen him on Thursday but he was the superstar. He was the celebrity. He was the celebrity that I wanted to see. You know, nearly every sport, if you love sports, has its celebrities. Whether it's basketball, uh, LeBron James, who just surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in scoring record, or it's in baseball, or it's in football, or it's in soccer, or it's in some other sport that you love. Almost every sport has a superstar. It has somebody who is a celebrity in that sport. That's true in politics. 
though I maybe shouldn't mention that this morning. There are some who are superstars in politics and some that are the celebrities, if you will, in the political arena. That's true in the educational arena. That's, in, that's true in nearly every aspect of life that there are people who seem to rise above everyone else and they become the stars. They become the celebrities, whether it's entertainment or whether it's education or whether it's sports or whatever it is. That's just the world we live in. We live in a world that is consumed with celebrity. Have you ever seen people, when a celebrity is coming, like I was when I was a teenage boy, just can't wait to get there to see this person, hear this person, be a part of the event where this person is going to be, and they'll do anything, almost anything, to be able to get there and to be a part of it? We are consumed with celebrity. That's just the world we live in. And not all of that is bad, by the way. A lot of that is just fun. A lot of that is just uh, us enjoying the life that God has given us around us, and we're thankful for it. But when you take that celebrity mentality and you move it into the church, the results often are not good. When you begin elevating people in the church other than Jesus Christ and giving to them a position and a standing before people such that they become celebrities, well, you and I have watched it over the past years, those that reached that, quote, celebrity status who didn't last very long. When you're talking about that kind of celebrity status within the church, you're talking about people who feel an entitlement mentality. Uh, They believe they deserve to be treated a particular way, and if you don't treat them that way, then they're going to let you know about it. They're going to make you feel uh, uh, regretful that you didn't make them feel that way. It's that kind of mentality that's a performance-based performance-oriented kind of perspective on life. Uh, You are looking for the approval of the crowd. You're looking for everybody to agree with you. You want everybody to give you their approval. Social media plays into this in such significant ways that years ago wasn't even a problem in that aspect. But how many clicks and how many likes and how many people will tell you that's the greatest thing I've ever heard, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard said, that's the greatest book that's ever been written, that's the greatest, that's the greatest. That entitlement mentality, that performance orientation, it's also built on the idea of power, power that's expressed in an incessant need to advance your own political, excuse me, your own personal agenda. I'm going to do this because I want to do this, and I'm going to make everybody go with me, and nobody can stand in my way. We're going to get this done, and this entitlement mentality, this performance orientation, this power that's expressed in this incessant need to advance your own personal agenda creates the the celebrity mentality, and and people step back, and they're in awe. Oh, man. But do you realize that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only celebrity should be Jesus and Jesus alone? In the Corinthian church, they were troubled by this celebrity mentality, so we're not the only ones who have to deal with it. 
They were troubled by this celebrity mentality. The people, not the preachers themselves, but the people were elevating to a status that they shouldn't have been doing. People like Paul and Apollos and Cephas, who we know as Peter, and others, they were elevating to a status of celebrity within the church, and then they were dividing themselves off amongst themselves. And the end result of that kind of a spirit caused this conflict to exist amongst them. I follow Paul. I mean, who would you want to follow other than Paul? Paul was the one who came through Corinth, and he won us to Christ, and he planted this church, and he discipled us in the, in the early days. What do you mean you're a follower of Apollos? Why would you follow Apollos when we have the great apostle who came here? And others spoke about Apollos in that same kind of a celebrity mentality. Well, goodness gracious, why would you want to listen to Paul? Paul is rather weak in his presence when he speaks. He's not really all that impressive. He has sort of a soft-spokenness about him. He looks rather weak in his physical body. But now listen, when Apollos steps to the pulpit, I want you to know he can preach the stars down. I mean, he can speak, and you feel like you're in heaven when you get through listening to Apollos preach. Why would you want to follow Paul? And you got that crowd that follows Cephas. And, you know, Cephas was a lot more hot-headed a lot more direct. He often spoke before he thought. Anybody like that in the room? He often spoke before he thought, and he was the bold one amongst them. Not that Paul wasn't bold or Apollos wasn't bold, but you think about Cephas, you think about Peter, he was bold, and you got those that have elevated him to a position of celebrity. Why do you want to follow Paul, or why do you want to follow Apollos? I mean, we've got We've got Peter. He was with Jesus. He was with Jesus. He walked on the water at least a step out of the boat to Jesus. And besides, when you want to know clarity, if you want to know what you think about something, just ask Peter. Peter will tell you. And they were dividing themselves amongst themselves, and they were arguing amongst themselves. The preachers were not causing this. We'll find that in the text here in a moment. The preachers were not causing this. This was the people. By the way, a lot of American celebrity today, it's created by the people. But they were causing this kind of a celebrity mentality to exist within the church, and the result was that it was creating conflict, and it was creating division. And so the Apostle Paul comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, let me tell you, let me straighten you out for a moment. Let me help you to understand what it is that we, myself, Apollos, Cephas, all of the others that are leaders here, let us make sure you understand exactly who we are and what we are. Let's be clear about this matter. And he uses three words. All three words are word pictures. When you look at the word itself, you get a picture that's drawn for you in your mind's eye as to exactly what he's saying. The first one is in verse 1, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Let a man so consider us as servants. We'll talk about that word in a moment. The first word is servants. He says we are devoted servants. The second word comes right after it, as stewards of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. There's your second word. 
He talks about themselves and he says they are not only devoted servants, but they are dependable stewards. We'll not get to that word today. But if you look at verse 9, you find the, the third word. Toward the end of the verse, and he says, For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. In other words, there's a devoted servant, a, a dependable steward, a determined spectacle. In those three words, all beginning with the letter S, those three words Paul uses to describe himself, to describe Apollos, to describe Cephas, to describe all of the leaders. While you people are elevating us to a status that we don't rightfully deserve, the reality is what we really are are servants and stewards and spectacles. Because Paul was trying to help them to see rightly these leaders, to lower their status, their celebrity status, not to stop following them, but to stop looking at them in the way they should be looking at Christ and at Christ alone. And he begins with that very first word. It's the word servants. He says, I want you to know what we are. We are devoted servants of Christ. Now, it's interesting that the Greek word that's translated servants here is different than the one that is normally used. It is a word that refers to somebody who is an under rower, an under oarsman. In the galley ships down beneath the deck, they had rows where men would line up at the oars and they would sit in these rows and they would be through a cadence uh, caused to pull the oars, and as they pulled the oars, the ship would move forward. If you've ever watched any of the old movies, I realize that I'm a lot older than a lot of you. Well, I'm not a lot older than a lot of you. I'm just a little older, right? Some of you haven't ever heard of the movie Ben-Hur, have you? Oh, wow. What a shame. It's like the Andy Griffith show. You just ought to be made to go back and have to watch those. <laughs> Ben-Hur is one of those classic movies. Guys, Charlton Heston's in it. And Charlton Heston is in a picture I got put up for you here. And this is what it looks like in the belly of one of those galley ships. And these men holding the oars row after row on each side of the ship. And there's somebody at the front of the ship that has a little drum. And he hits that drum and as he hits the drum, that is the cadence for pulling the oar. And the faster you hit that drum, the faster they are able to pull those oars and the faster the ship will move. And they move from just barely moving along and creeping along to what they call a battle mentality where they're ready to ram another ship because they're pulling harder and harder. And of course, if you're in this galley and you're one of these under rowers, one of these under oarsmen, I mean, you're little more than a servant. You're little more than a slave. If you didn't do your task, you didn't fulfill what you were supposed to do, there were those who would come along with a whip in their hand and they would whip you. You weren't one of the sailors that was on the deck. You weren't one of the captains that was up on the, on the deck or the officers that were up on the deck. You were down in the belly of the ship and you had your hands on an oar and you were doing what you were told to do and pulling as hard as you could pull and punished if you didn't. And the apostle Paul comes and says, look, 
You need to stop looking at me as like one of the captains or one of the officers or even one of the sailors of the ship. What you need to look at is you need to see me down in the belly of the ship because the reality is what I am is a servant of God. I am somebody who's just doing the task that God has assigned to me and I'm doing it as faithfully as I can and as honorably as I can. It isn't something to be glamorous. It isn't something to be looked at and to be viewed with some kind of celebrity about it. It's something that I do in obedience to Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of attitude that Jesus talked about in, in the Gospels. You can read about it. As a matter of fact, turn there with me for a moment to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, a couple of Jesus' disciples, James and John, come to him. We know from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20 where the parallel passage is found, the parallel to this story is found, that they put their mother up to going to Jesus and asking Jesus to let her two sons have positions of honor in his coming kingdom, that they would be given the opportunity to sit one at the left hand and one at the right hand. Can you imagine? And by the way, when the other disciples heard what James and John had done and what their mother had done, they were up in arms. And I have to wonder if they weren't up in arms because they didn't think of it first that they didn't see themselves as being some of the sailors and some of the captains and, and some of the officers that were on the deck. They didn't see themselves as servants holding on to an oar and just pulling as hard as they can and doing the task that had been assigned to them. And Jesus speaks to them and he says, listen to me, guys. It's not mine to give to the left or right hand. You're going to suffer that's the reality of what you're facing ahead. But it's not mine to give to the left or the right hand. And then he gives them an important lesson in verse 42. Listen to what Jesus teaches them. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Where would you like to be? Would you like to be lording it over people? Would you like to be one of the great ones exercising authority? Verse 43, yet it shall not be so. Yet it shall not be so. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your, what? Servant. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Now listen, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Isn't it amazing that the one who could acclaim celebrity, who had the right to the superstar status, isn't it amazing that when he describes himself, he describes himself as someone who is here to serve and someone who has come to give his life a ransom? Isn't it amazing 
that he's come to give himself away to others. I didn't come looking to find out what you're going to do for me. I've come to you to do for you. And you follow the ministry of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Over and over again, Jesus serves those who are broken, those that are left out, those that are forgotten, those that are hated and those that are despised, those that are caught up in their sin and pulled down into the depths of a pit and cannot get out, Jesus comes to them again and again, and he doesn't say to them, now you come serve me. Do you know who I am? Jesus comes to them, and he says, I want you to know that I've come to serve you. Don't you think the man who had the blindness, and Jesus placed the spittle on his eyes, and he opens his eyes ultimately. He opens his eyes, and he's able to see. Don't you think he understood what it meant that Jesus had come to serve him? Or the ones who had the leprosy, and Jesus gave them healing so that they could come back into society and be a part of society? Don't you believe that, that they understood what it was to be served by Jesus? Or those that were hurting or broken, don't you think that they understood what it was to be served by Jesus? And we have to be careful in modern American Christianity that we not allow ourselves to morph into a celebrity culture where we think we are somebody, where we have that entitlement mentality, that performance orientation, where we crave power and we come to people that are around us and we say to those that need the help of the Almighty God, I'm here not for you to serve me. I'm here to serve you. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about. Paul was talking about that kind of service that was rendered. He and Apollos and Cephas and the others, you're elevating us. You're putting us on a pedestal. You're raising us to a level where we should not be. I want you to understand who we are. We are merely under oarsmen. We are under rowers. We're not sailors. We're not officers. We're not the captain of the ship. We're just servants with a hand on the oar. That when the drum is beat, we pull and we give our best and we do all we can because our job is to serve the Lord to the best of our ability for as long as we can. And that means caring for others and serving others and reaching others with that kind of caring and compassionate service. There is no greater display of the kind of service than what comes to us in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that we have a mind of humility amongst us, right? We're supposed to have a mind of humility. We're supposed to uh, be concerned for others more than we are ourselves. And we're to have the attitude of Christ when Christ came into the world. And what does it say about Christ? He took on the form of a, what's the word? Of a servant. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You talk about love today. There is no greater display of love than the service of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary when he paid the sin penalty for every one of us. There is no greater display. God called us to serve 
He didn't call us to seek a position of importance and prominence. He didn't empower. He didn't, he didn't call us to seek some kind of celebrity status in his church. He called every one of us to be exactly like the Apostle Paul, to be willing to put our hands on the oar and be willing to pull the oar and to do our part to move the ship of his church forward in the world where he has placed that ship. You know, people sometimes come and they say, Pastor, you know, our church does a lot of neat things, and we do. We have a lot of ministries in a lot of areas doing a lot of things. But somebody will always come and they say, Pastor, you know, we really need something here. We don't have anything for people there. We need to create something over here. We need to make sure we have something over there. And they always find the places where we don't have something rather than see the places where we do have something. And when people bring those kind of things to me, do you know my first response is if God has pointed it out to you, then God is asking you to take care of it. But that's not the way it works in modern American Christianity. I don't know how it works in other parts of the world, but in other parts of the world, we're used to being served. We go to the restaurant, we're served. We have utility companies. We pay them. We're served by those companies. And when something doesn't work right, we expect them to fix it, and we expect them to fix it now. We, de we are determined to be served. When we go to the store, we expect to be served. When we go to the restaurant, we expect to be served. We want to be served, and we're consumers. And if we're not served the way we think we ought to be served, what do we do? We'll say, I'll go somewhere else, and I'll find some place that will serve me. Now, I understand that some of that, talking about paying your bills and companies providing the services that they're supposed to provide, I understand the significance of that. But do you understand we bring that mentality into the church, we bring that attitude into the church, and we see something where there's a need, and we think we ought to get somebody else to take care of it. And God is saying, you know, why don't you put your hands on the oars? And why don't you say, I'll take responsibility? Do you realize that you could not stop this church. Look at the number of people that are in this first service. You could not stop this church and what God wants to do through us in this community if everybody had their hands on the oars and everybody was pulling together. There wouldn't be empty places and things that needed to get done that aren't getting done. There would be more than enough people to be able to fill all of the slots with all of the aspects that God wants us to do. But it takes everybody being what the Apostle Paul said that he and Apollos were. He says, we are servants. And you know what the problem is? The problem is the same problem as the Corinthian church. It's the problem, please don't get mad at me this morning now. The problem is pride. We're American Christians. We're used to being served. We are consumers. You don't provide us what we think we should have, then we will find another place that will provide us what we think we should have. We'll go from one church to another church to another church until we find exactly what we want that's serving us. And do you realize that at the core of that, is little more than pride. I deserve this. I'm not supposed to be a servant. I'm not supposed to be putting my hands on the oars and pulling with everybody else. I'm supposed to be served by that church. I'm supposed to be served by those people. Do you realize that that's the attitude of a lot of American Christians? 
I'm supposed to be served by the church rather than me coming to serve God through his church. And by the way, serving God through his church doesn't necessarily mean staying in the nursery or watching the toddlers or working in the children's ministry or you know, being a part of the teen ministry or being a life group leader or singing in the choir. It may mean just walking across the street to your neighbor who's lonely and has very few visits. You rarely see him or her out and befriending them. Or it might mean going down to the mission and helping to serve the dinners to those who are homeless and desperately need a meal and a place to stay. Or it might be going to the crisis pregnancy center and volunteering your time to be there to help those women who are coming in a crisis moment of their lives. There's lots of ways to serve, but the reality is every one of us should be putting our hands to the oars and we should be pulling together with everyone else. And if you're looking for a celebrity, it isn't me, it isn't any member of our staff, it isn't any of us that are sitting in this room. None of us are the celebrities. The celebrity amongst us is Jesus Christ, and all of us are serving him. All of us are serving him. And serving other people strikes at the core of pride within us. I want you to look down in your text. We'll look at all of this before we finish, but not today. I want you to notice verse 6, what he says. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, rather than me point out the ones in the Corinthian church and naming them by name so that you'll know who is at the core of what's happening, I'm going to use Apollos and myself as examples. I have transferred figuratively to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may learn. Where are they going to learn it? In us. In us. Not to think beyond what is written. That none of you may be, and hear the words, puffed up. And when people become proud and puffed up, what happens? On behalf of one against the other. I love that little word, puffed up, that two word, one word in the Greek, one word in the Greek, two words in our English translation. If you have a modern translation, a newer translation than mine, it may have the word proud. I saw in one translation the word arrogant. But I don't really like those words. I mean, those are appropriate words. Those are accurate descriptions. I, I like the word here, puffed up, this little phrase, puffed up. Hey, have you ever seen a puffer fish? a blowfish, and they blow up into a ball with water and air. It becomes a part of their defense mechanism. They have other aspects to their defense mechanism, but they fill up and they blow up into a ball as a part of their defense mechanism. And the apostle Paul comes and says, you're just like that. You're puffed up. You walk around with a sense of your self-importance. You should be serving me. I mean, after all, you are blessed to have me here. Aren't you grateful that I've come? <laughs> Thank you, Stu. <laughs> and we get puffed up. I, I love the word. Look over at verse 18. I want you to see what was going on in the church at Corinth. Verse 18. Now some are puffed 
up. Verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I'll, I will know not the word of those who are, what? Puffed up. Or chapter 5, verse 2, and you are puffed up. Look over at chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, now listen, listen. Being smart's a really, really good thing as long as you remember to be humble and to humble yourself because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Or look over at chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 4, the great love chapter. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up over and over and over again. Have you got the idea of what's going on in Corinth? They got a bunch of people walking around who are puffed up. They are full of themselves. Do you know who I am? Do you know who my leader is? Do you understand that all of y'all ought to come to our side and join us over here and be a part with us? You shouldn't be over there. You shouldn't be following that leader. You should be following my leader. And they get puffed up. What keeps people from serving? It's pride. I'm happy for you to serve me, Pastor. And by the way, I'm thankful to have that privilege and thankful to have that opportunity. But I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad to be here today, Pastor, because I'm here for you to serve me because I'm here to consume what you're offering. And when you no longer are offering what I'm consuming and you're no longer serving me, then I'm going to leave this ship and find me another one where I can be a part of. And God comes to all of us and he says what he's looking for aren't celebrities He's not looking for people who are superstars. What God is looking for are people who are willing to put their hand on the oars of the ship and be willing to be down in the belly of that ship, who are willing to pull with the others that are pulling down there to move forward the cause of Jesus Christ. And every one of us can do that. It's not a matter of how educated you are or how talented you are or how capable you are. Anybody can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You probably haven't heard, or maybe you have, the name Dawson Trotman. Dawson Trotman was the founder of the Navigators. The Navigators was a, is, it is to this day a great discipleship ministry. It printed dozens and dozens and dozens of books related to discipleship and how to disciple people. Dawson Trotman lost his life. He died trying to save a girl who was drowning but Dawson Trotman, the founder of the, the Navigators, went to the little island of Taiwan. This is back in the middle of the 19th century, 1940s and 50s. He went to the little island of Taiwan, and while he was there, he met with a pastor who wanted to take him back into the mountains to meet some of the people, some of the Christians that were back in the mountains. In order to get to the mountains, they had to walk these wet roads. And the result of walking these long trails that were wet and muddy is that their shoes got caked with mud, got caked with mud. Finally got to these different places they were going and they were able to meet with the Christians. But somebody asked this Taiwanese pastor, what is it that most impressed you about this great American Christian by the name of Dawson Trotman? 
And the Taiwanese, Taiwanese pastor said, what most impressed me is that the next morning when I got up, Dawson Trotman had taken my shoes and had cleaned all of the mud off of my shoes so that my shoes were clean when I got up to begin the day on that day. Do you get what I'm saying? This isn't about your status. This isn't about your education. This isn't about how smart you are or how capable you are. There's, there's things that every one of us can do. There are things that all of us can be a part of. I heard the story of a well-known Bible preacher, Bible teacher. If I told you his name, you'd know his name. He was in Washington, D.C. He was there for a men's meeting. And he spoke at that meeting and all the men were listening and they were taking notes and learning from him as he was expounding upon the scriptures. And when he finished his message, people wanted to speak to him, but little by little, the crowd got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just a handful of people and this visiting minister who was there in Washington, D.C. And he looked back at the conference room where they had been meeting and there was a man. He was standing and he was folding chairs and he was taking them over and stacking them up two or three at a time, folding them up and taking them over and stacking them up. Nobody else was helping him. Everybody else was making their way away from the meeting. And this minister said to one of the men who was there, he said, who is that man? Who is that man? And he learned that that man was one of our United States senators. You don't have to be a United States senator sitting in a big, powerful office somewhere making major votes on things that affect the entire country in order to serve. You can be folding up chairs and putting them against a wall somewhere and be serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You can be folding up chairs and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, let, let a man so consider us as servants. Now, I want you to understand something about serving, and I'm going to finish here. This is about serving down. This is not about serving up. It's a lot easier to serve up. You know what I mean by that? People who have more authority than we do, people that we're responsible to, people that are going to pay our checks, people that are going to do, uh, that, that tell us what to do in a given day. It's easier for us to serve up, but where we have to swallow our pride and say, you know what, I'm going to go down into the belly of the ship and I'm going to put my hands on that oar and I'm going to pull with everybody else is when you have to start serving down the people that don't have what you have and the people that aren't where you are and the people who are broken and beaten and the people that are left by society in the gutter of the street and nobody else cares for them, that's when you find out what it means to serve as the Apostle Paul is talking about serving. There's a story that's found way back in the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. Let me tell it to you as I bring this to a close. David the king had ruled, but now he was dead. His son Solomon came to power. And Solomon was the one who built the temple. Paul, Solomon, and he conscripted the people. He put them into routines and, and rotations, and he got that temple built and all of the ornateness and the beauty of the temple. But now Solomon is dead. And the next to come to rule is the man by the name of Rehoboam. 
The people come to Rehoboam and they say, look, if you'll lighten the taxes and you'll lighten the load on us, we'll serve you till the last day of your life. Rehoboam went to the elders, to the older men. Now, this is not that older men are always right or that younger men are always wrong. But they went to the older men. He went to the older men and he asked the older men, what, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do about what they're asking us? Verse 6, he says, Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he, was, while he still lived. And he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they, the elders, the older men that had been there with Solomon, and they spoke to him saying, If you will be, now listen, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Forever. In other words, Solomon had no other other than God himself, had no other way to serve up to those that were above him. He is the king of Israel. He only had the opportunity to serve down to those that were beneath him. And they come and they say, will you serve us? Will you lighten the load of the taxation? Will you lighten the load of the rotation service that we've been rendering at the temple to build the temple? Will you lighten the load? And the elders said, you ought to listen to them. Rehoboam didn't like the advice that he got. So Rehoboam went to the younger men. You know what the younger men said? The younger men said, don't lighten the load, turn it up. Make the taxation even harder. Make the rotation even longer. Don't let go of the handle. Just hold on as tightly as you can. Make sure you don't loosen it at all on them. The noose that's on them. Don't loosen the, the, the noose that's on them at all. And do you know the result of that? The result of that is that the kingdom became divided. Ten tribes went with a man by the name of Jeroboam, and two of the tribes stayed with the man Rehoboam, but the kingdom was divided. Why? Because Rehoboam wouldn't serve down. He wouldn't serve down to those that needed his help. I think a fascinating phrase is found in Acts chapter 20. It's about the Apostle Paul. He has the elders all together, the leaders of the churches all together. And he says about himself, verse 34, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands, Paul's hands, have provided for my necessities. In other words, I've been, I, I've been a tent maker. I've been working my way along, paying my own way. And I've been asking you to take care of me. I've been paying my own way. Now listen, that these hands have provided for my necessities. Now here comes, and... For those who are with me. Even those who were traveling with Paul, he was working to serve down to those people who were following him and who were helping him in the ministry that God had given to him. And he served down to those people. Listen, folks. The Lord Jesus wants every one of us to stop seeing ourselves as celebrities or the superstar or that we're going to ride the white horse in and we're going to save the day. He wants us to 
look at ourselves like galley servants and like galley slaves who have our hand on an oar and we're pulling as hard as we can and doing our part with the others who are pulling on the oars so that we can move forward what God has given us to do. He's called us not to be superstars. He's called us to be servants. And Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Servant. 